Well, open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 2 today, verses 8 through 10. Just three verses. Be a real short sermon. Not necessarily. You know, it's hard to know how to pace a book. There are logical divisions in a book. And I think this is a nice way to cut this. Two, two topics that we'll see that, that don't appear to go together, but that actually go together perfectly, as we'll see in due course. The title of the sermon is Getting Ready for Church, Prayers, Hairdos, Modesty, etc. Let's start by reading from God's Word. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Well, last week, our family met up with Christie's side of the family uh, for a week to relax in Florida. Two days were not relaxing. They were at the parks in Orlando. In the ramp up, I was doing no small amount of talking and raving about this first opportunity to ride roller coasters with my children. I was so excited. They were not talking about that, though. And this is when Christy started talking about expectations and how it might be helpful if we talk about, you know, what we'll do at the parks. I guess if you do some reading on going to Disney, you know, the family walks in the door and everyone's got a different idea and then sparks fly. They almost flew, but for Christy's uh, help there. Well, in our series, we've been ascending a roller coaster. That initial pull up the track, looking into the heavens. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That was the That was the first click up the track. And after a bit on false teaching, we heard Paul's testimony of salvation and God's overflowing grace and the mercy that the author received. The foremost of sinners, he called himself, so that God's perfect patience might be displayed in him as his perfect patience is is displayed in you if you belong to him. And then another click, the mountain peak of praise to the king of ages immortal invisible the only god be honor and glory forever and ever amen and then another click a window into the very heart of god the wideness of his heart the god who desires all to be saved who gave his son as a ransom for all and there we were the last time we met under this book looking into the heavens, into the very heart of God, and out to the horizon to as far as his great grace and mercy reaches. Then, as Sandy suggested to me after my return, here comes the drop. Like a coaster. At least the modesty part of this passage may make you nervous. It may make you excited. It may terrify you. It may already have made you mad. Whatever it has done, like a good coaster, it will not be boring. Some of you have had some bad experiences with some of this subject matter, admittedly. And some of you are someone else's bad experience on this subject matter. Some of you have had no experience with it. You may be a new Christian, and it's, a lot of things are new to you in the scriptures. And this morning, you'll learn that God cares about how we clothe ourselves. And you're curious about what he'll have to say. Some of you can't believe you're sitting here today. Only a few years ago, you would have said this is the height of arrogance, patriarchal oppression, limiting women's self-expression, which is theirs to express and not ours to suppress. Or maybe that's you right now. Restrictions on clothing, part you'd say of a toxic purity culture. And then some of you are at an age where you're starting to think a lot more about what you're wearing and how it looks. And so this topic intersects with some things you've been thinking about, about dress, and with some conversations that you may have had with your your parents or those who are discipling you. And some of those may be greatly encouraging and helpful, and 
Others might be discouraging and involve some repentance and redirection. All different kinds of hearers this morning. I expect that most of us desire to honor the Lord in what we wear. And this topic is admittedly uh, comes with a bit of confusion and even discouragement for some. And there won't be any silver bullets or particular lists of a certain kind that some might want today, but there will be some lists that I pray are helpful. Here in our hand, we have a message from God, a challenging message. It'll challenge those who have grown accustomed to thinking that modesty, to focus just on that at the head here, is a matter of checklists who are satisfied personally and who approve of others as long as things appear to be in order. It will encourage and help those who have been confused by that kind of preoccupation with the externals. And it will challenge those who have reacted poorly to poor teaching on modesty by pitching standards altogether as culturally relative and therefore irrelevant. And it'll challenge all of us who live in a theater of normalized, commercialized, and sexualized immodesty. Where do we begin? Sometimes I'm not sure where to begin with the sermon, and so I close my eyes, and I just start typing. And then a lot of times, it just comes out just right. That's how we need to enter. Where do we begin? Let's start by considering how these two commands relate to one another. Talked a bit about the modesty piece because that's got our attention, but there's a command here for the men about anger and prayer. And how does that relate with what he instructs the ladies in? Let me draw your attention to a word. It is the word then. Then, verse 8. I desire then. Why does Paul desire that men should pray without anger and that ladies should adorn themselves in a particular way? because of something he has apparently just said. And maybe that thing that he has just said will be a key to why he says what he's about to say to men and to women and what may unite those things. What did he just say? Well, he urged us to pray for all people and for kings in order that we might live a quiet life. And this because the Lord, verse four of chapter two, desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And there we have the message of the gospel, which is always on the apostles' lips and which must be always on our minds and which gives way to the commands that we hear this morning. Urgent words about all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people and a God who desires all to be saved. Words about, as we called it last time, God's wide heart for a church that had apparently turned in on itself. And that's the problem this church at Ephesus had. They were turned inward by the subtle perspective narrowing effect of false teaching. We've said that false teaching isn't necessarily teaching that directly contradicts Uh, true doctrine, but it can be the kind that adds new things that eclipse the central doctrines that we believe, the kinds of things like there is one mediator between God and men and God desires all to be saved. Turned inward by different doctrines and endless speculations and turned inward by teaching that may have tasted good, that may have itched the ears, but it malnourished the flock. And you could tell When a person is famished of food, you can tell. Perhaps the skin sticks to the bones and they look sickly thin and they're unhealthy and they don't think straight and they're emotionally unstable and their cravings are off and they turn in on themselves. Well, when a church is feeding on unsound or unhealthy doctrine or just on a whole bunch of frivolous things that are tying up the mind and the time and the heart of the people, There are also certain signs. Believers, we could say, stop competing for souls outside the church to win them and begin competing against one another inside the church, which has an effect like an autoimmune disease. You think of these two commands, a command to men not to be angry and quarrel, but to pray and to women to adorn themselves in a particular way. The men compete against one another over 
ideas and positions. Some desire to be teachers. The women compete against one another for eyes and for affections. The men plot ways to beat one another. The women to best one another. The men turn meetings into a boxing ring. The women corporate gatherings into the red carpet. We have red carpet. Uh, the, men desire, sorry, the men desire to be first and the women desire to be fashionable. This is what I think is going on here. Why Paul addresses these things now and these particular things here. This is not a text in the first place on the topics of anger management and modesty. It is not a text on religious exercises and dress in the first place. This is a passage that shows us what it looks like when we know God and the wideness of his heart. And when our heart beats with his, when we know ourselves to be the chief of sinners, and when we know Jesus to be our ransom, when we are nourished on this kind of sound doctrine that reveals to our hearts the very heart of God. So before we jump into examining these two commands, hear this. You cannot deal with anger in men, men, or modesty in women apart from an encounter with the majesty and the mercy of God, which is why he didn't just lean into these things in the first chapter, but which is why we get it now. The majesty of his immortality and his infinity, which makes it, if we really get it, impossible to fight men over small things. They look small when they are. And his mercy, which means you ladies are completely accepted and loved already. And so you do not need to come to church for the eyes or the approval of your brothers and sisters. I desire then, he says. We hear this in the context of the majesty and the mercy of God. Well, let's reflect in two parts how God is nourishing his church. First, and again, I don't get paid for outlines, something for the men, something for the men. Verse eight, what do men of the church look like when they are transformed by the majesty and mercy of God? Well, look at their hands. They're lifted up in prayer. Men, we're to be spiritual men. Men who seek God in everything and, according to the wideness of God's heart for the world, who seek God in prayer for everyone. Men for whom prayer is not merely a religious exercise, but a real-time experience of communion with the Creator. So men, when we pray, we remember that God is God and we are not that he is the creator and we are the creature, that he is the redeemer and we're the ones who were lost apart from his redeeming mercy. Men, we pray alone, but we especially pray together. He says in every place, this likely refers to the house churches where the congregation at Ephesus would meet. Here in this auditorium, certainly, and when we meet in one another's homes, spiritual men, praying men. But look at his hand, look at these hands again. He didn't just say he desires that all men to pray. He said, pray lifting holy, holy hands, spiritually minded men and sanctified men. The Lord wants more than our, our hands and our lips in prayer, but he rejoices over our hearts and our lives when they're his. He wants more than the sound of our voice, but our very selves. Men set apart for him, holy hands, clean hands. Here's what you should not hear in this, that we can earn a hearing with God by our holy lives. Only Jesus can take us into the holy place. Only Jesus' blood can cleanse us from all the sin that makes us acceptable, unacceptable to God. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, we began, and who shall stand in his holy place? From Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And who is that? 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And who's the king of glory? Because in king terms, we're talking about the Davidic son, the son promised an eternal throne, a human son of David. But who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The only way any of us get into the kingdom of God or have a hearing with God in his holy presence is by the Lord himself coming to be our king and himself being of clean hands and dying in our place as the scriptures reveal. The only one who can go into God's presence is the Lord Jesus. And so I pray that as you've been here this morning and as you have sung these songs and heard these scriptures and hear these words, that you are found trusting in the Lord Jesus to take you into the holy place. For apart from Jesus, there is no way to be heard and received by God. There is no safety in his presence apart from Jesus. But that is not because God is an evil ogre. No, God himself so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so as you're here, believe. Believe on Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that we'll hear more about. And then pray, men, and be heard. Jesus brings us with him into the presence of God. But there is a way in which our lives before God can negatively affect our prayers to God. You may remember Peter's words in 1 Peter 3, live with your wives in an understanding way, men, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, how might living with your wife in a harsh way hinder your prayers? Well, most of us sinners that we are would know to one degree or another, by experience, surely God sees our sin against his daughters. And of course, we know our own sin. And it's not exactly easy to pray when we're harsh with the gifts that are our spouses. Well, the same goes for quarreling in the church. Men, we can be harsh with our spouse and that hinders our prayers. Men, we can be harsh with one another, Christ's bride. That hinders our prayers as well. Let us pray, he says, without anger and quarreling. Let us pray with holy hands, not clenched fists. Men, let us have opinions and such. Men, let us vigorously and energetically engage one another in discussion where that's needed. But let us not be angry about them, except where we know from Scripture that God is angry along with us. And let us be cautious about assuming that he is. Some may imagine God always to be angry with them. Slow down and ask yourself, is your gut right about everything? It is easy to be sinfully angry in church, in part because we often feel spiritually justified in our grievances and our frustrations Because so often the things that we're frustrated about are connected to things that are actually broken about the place because we are indeed a work in progress. But then some people just like to fight. And if you're wondering if if this is you, you ought to know that this is you and this is you. Reflexively contrarian. You might even say so. If you hear a man say something, you will oppose it. If you hear a man say something strongly, you will oppose it strongly. If you hear 10 men say something, you will oppose it with the force and length of 20 men. Devil's advocate, you may say, but maybe the devil's pawn, brother. There is a fine line between playing the devil's advocate and being the devil's advocate. Oh, how wise was Satan to cook up the category of devil's advocate to lull us to sleep in our grumpiness between offering a contrary opinion and quarreling there is a fine line between that and actually doing the devil's work he loves devil's advocates so some questions for the men some questions about being quarrelsome when you get in the car do you generally have negative things to say about people programs personalities after church Are you consistently registering, consistently registering a pattern of contrary opinions? 
Do you like the ideas you have first, but find you don't generally have energy for the good ideas of others? Are you excitable about secondary and tertiary issues, but not so much as you listen to yourself about what are the truly main things? Are you reluctant to trust good and trustworthy men, even your leaders or other leaders with whom you disagree over a matter of secondary or tertiary importance? Do you rarely ever change your mind? Are you plain grumpy? Maybe you're not getting into any quarrels because you're not coming into sufficient contact with people. And maybe that's because you've worn yourself out of talking. Or maybe that's because they've figured out how to not deal with you. For right or better or worse, right or wrong, people have learned to walk by you or work around you. And if so, you might, this is just a might, you might be quarrelsome. Like some at Ephesus in chapter six, we'll read that some were puffed up with conceit, with an unhealthy craving and appetite for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. No doubt, men, all of us have a little bit of this in us. Some of us have more than others. And then sometimes there's a guy that can't even see it. And sometimes he's not regenerate. All of this betrays a small God in the mind, a narrow-hearted God in your heart, a God whose thoughts and heart are only wide enough for you, only as big as the real estate that you occupy in the universe. And your small God leading to a quarrelsome spirit that is tying up so much time and energy with small things that elevates you is making the church sick and it's taking her off her game. This is Paul's aim in his letter, but focused on men. He stated his aim in chapter one, verse five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Hands in prayer that match the heart inside. Prayer that is not a mere show of piety. So let us pray to God as spiritual men, sanctified men and sincere men, not men who pray on the church. That's what we are when we see God for who he is. That's a word for us men. Now, a word for the ladies, something for the ladies. Verse nine and 10. What do the ladies look like when they are transformed by the majesty and by the mercy of our great God? Likewise, also, I desire, Paul says, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Of course, the women need to pray too. And can women pray in corporate gatherings? Certainly. We see this in 1 Corinthians. Why differing commands for the genders then? Because of different patterns of besetting sins. Friends, I promise, although I look gorgeous up here, I contribute nothing to our huge cosmetic industry in these United States. But I can be prayerless and angry. And our wives, generally, uh, will all be convicted about not praying enough. But on a gener- as a general rule, and I can say this as a pastor, even after Ann Galusha is no longer with us, the women tend to pray more. And they even dress some of their husbands. So God, in his wisdom in his design for us, has given men a measure of toughness and women a measure of taste. Sin in both means these strengths, by God's design, under the fall, give us trouble. And so we've got to know ourselves. So let's talk about women's clothing. Sometimes the preacher begins his sermon, I'd like to talk to you about Fill in the blank this morning. And I had one of my ways of starting was, 
I don't want to talk to you about, fill in the blank this morning. <laughs> no, we come to these things as in God's wisdom, they're in his word and this will be good for us. He says, likewise, I desire also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. We are talking about clothes, what kind? Please, Lord, give me a checklist. Boom, we have a checklist right here. Three things to begin. We've all been there, invited to some special event, wondering if we are gonna be wearing the right things. I've gone to a conference before and texted a buddy, what are you wearing, jeans or slacks? Um, nice shoes or tennis shoes? What kind of thing is this? Uh, well, you wanna hit it just right. You don't wanna stand out. And so likewise, you know, it depends on who's going to be there and who you're with and what the occasion is. Likewise, we wanna know how we ought to dress. And it's a great help when we can just be told. Well, in God's kindness, he's, he's told us. Here we have three characteristics for three questions. And I'm gonna say up front, this is a bit of... Um, what I'm about to do is enforced, but these three words, though they come in a list, are nearly indistinguishable. In fact, if you look at different translations over time, you know, the middle one is modesty in this translation, the first one is modesty in the next translation. They're overlapping to create this, a single sense of the whole. But I'll focus on each one to see what we can, what we can pick out of it. First, we can ask of our attire or your attire, or you can ask of your own attire, ladies, is it respectable? Is it respectable? Now, what does that mean? Well, maybe we could put it this way. Does it show due respect to who you are and to whom you belong? Some questions. Does this respect your father demonstrating his care for and protection of you, especially that would apply to young ladies in the room in the homes of your fathers. Does it respect your husband for those that are, that are married, showing that you are satisfied in God's gift to you in your spouse or in your singleness that you're, you're trusting him? Does it respect your brothers in Christ not dressing to lure them to look at you? though you're not accountable for any sins they may commit in their mind. As a daughter of the God of all majesty and mercy, does this outfit reinforce the idea that you are an object for consumption or that your body has been bought with a price for his worship? Does it help you walk in a manner worthy of your calling or worthy of a second look? These are just questions to get you thinking. They are not questions to push you into a particularly narrow uh, understanding of dress and modesty, Uh, but I hope that they're helpful. So is it respectable? Those are fine questions and application of that word. Is it modest? Is it modest? That's the next word we have. Now, the first thing some are thinking is, is measurements. And we need to not think about measurements, at least first, and I'm slightly, mm, highly suspicious of measurement making because I'm highly suspicious of the human heart's love for rule making. And I'm reminded of the whitewashed tombs of the Pharisees who held such detailed applications over others. And in the course of time, although they were originally designed from a desire to please the Lord, ended up doing the opposite. For it is easy when we make very particular rules and application to things like this, it is very easy to trust that a keeping of the measurement equals, in this case, modesty. And as we'll see as I tease this out, you can actually be very immodestly in your flaunting of your precise measurements. Is it modest? Is it modest? That's the question. We can miss the meaning of modesty when we equate it with measurements. It's like saying that someone isn't angry because they don't have an angry face. <laughs> or someone is, someone is peaceable because they keep their volume to this decibel level. So I want to help, help refill the, the language of modesty so that it's more broadly useful to us and so that it actually has more, more force when it comes to dress. Not to flatten out the universe. So much depends in dress on context, time of year, occasion, culture, and the company you're with. And while there's a place for community standards, we have confused many a Christian young lady with an abundance of measurements. So let us 
Observe the obvious. As one pastor said, the Bible has no pictures. It has no pictures. Immodesty, let's start there, can be defined with two words. So now immodesty, two words. Showing off, showing off. Showing off my body, showing off my ideas, showing off my sense of humor, my education, my creativity, even showing off my humility. Immodesty says, listen to me. It says, look at me. It says, laugh at me. It says, remember me. It says, that was my idea. It says, I know you were saying something, but, and then starts talking. I can do that. Social media doesn't help with this, by the way, does it? Showing off. Here's a definition of modesty by one author that I thought was especially helpful. Inner self-government rooted in a proper understanding of oneself before God, which outwardly displays itself in humility and purity from a genuine love of Jesus Christ rather than self-glorification and self-advertisement. So there's outward expression, but listen to all the inward stuff in that paragraph. I'll read it again. Inner self-government rooted in a proper understanding of oneself before God, which outwardly displays itself in humility and purity from a genuine love of Jesus Christ rather than self-glorification and self-advertisement. And of course, that applies to so much more than dress. Jesus himself, the modest one who did not show off, though he was the very son of God. So some questions to ask about modesty and clothes in particular. Clothes are worn to conceal. God made them for that. But does this outfit, is it designed to reveal Will this outfit draw attention to what is intimate? Does it make public or tease out what is private? Do you, in your motivation, hope to stand out among other ladies? And a little bit of that may not be sinful, but there can be a preoccupation with catching eyes. Simply put, are you trying to show off with your dress? Is it modest? Is it respectable? Is it modest? Third, is it self-controlled? Another inward virtue, a virtue of restraint, a virtue that keeps us back from excess, a virtue that is especially needed in the area of sexual temptation. For men, restraining their desires to indulge, and for women, restraining their desire to be indulged. So some questions, am I wearing this because I'm controlled by a lust for other people's approval? Am I wearing this because I am controlled by a fear of rejection? Am I even able in this choice to restrain myself if I wanted to? So there's your checklist. Is it respectable? Is it modest? Is it self-controlled? Now, two questions come right away. And both the ladies and the guys would ask these questions. Does this mean that women need be frumpish? Does this mean, does this mean that women need wear denim shapeless tube dresses? No, it does not. Modesty does not have to, nor does it even entail that a lady be boring. He does not say you should wear respectable clothing. He doesn't say that. You think, didn't he just say that? No. He said, adorn yourself with respectable clothing. He doesn't tell them, he tells them to adorn themselves and assumed here is an affirmation of the basic beauty of women. And that nice clothes are not the issue here. The Proverbs 31 women, to fill this out a bit, because as we read any one passage, we want to read it in light of 
the whole of scripture. The Proverbs 31 women wore fine linen and purple. And she was respecting perfectly her husband and her family and her community. And when we read Revelation 19, we know what it's talking about. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, God glory, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So the female beauty is not a liability. Like ladies with the shape that God gave them are some kind of walking spiritual explosive. It is okay to be attractive and to desire to be attractive. It is not okay to desire and work really hard at being attractive so that everyone will be attracted to you. This language of modesty has to do with excess and self-control, being uncontrolled. Feminine beauty is powerful precisely because of how God made it. And women should be careful. So in the interest of being respectable and modest, another question, are there any fashions that are off limits? Are there any fashions that are off limits? What Not to Wear was a show that aired years ago. And we can all appreciate knowing what to wear. We can all be appreciate being told what not to wear. Don't wear that. Thank you. I would rather find out now than later. Well, here they are. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without quarreling. Likewise, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And you're like, really? What will he say next? Let me read you some things. Listen for what might have been a problem in Ephesus from chapter six. We brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out of the world, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Wealth, plenty of it in Ephesus. It was a center of a regional bank. It was a religious center. Lots of shops, lots of showing off. Now listen to this description of the fashion trends of the day. The sculpture and literature of the period make it clear that women often wore their hair in enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven or piled high like towers and decorated with gems or gold or pearls. The harlots wore their hair in numerous small pendant braids with gold droplets or pearls or gems every inch or so, making shimmering screen of their locks. And a literalistic reading of our passage today would have it that braids and gems are off limits for Christian women. A literal reading takes Paul to be offering an example in time of an eternal principle, an example in context of a timeless command, an outward expression of an inward fixed virtue. Peter will even say to ladies in a parallel passage, he really says this. He says, don't adorn yourself with braids or jewelry or clothing. <laughs> he says literally, literalistically, uh, don't wear clothing. What does he literally mean? He means don't be all about your clothes. Wear nice clothes. Don't be all about your clothes. Men are told to lift their hands, but that doesn't mean they can't bow down or lay down. It's an example and context of an eternal principle. For you ladies, it is always right for you to dress in a respectable manner with modesty and self-control. However, what that looks like will be different from place to place in time to time, even across generations. In the Victorian era, era, women did not expose their ankles. Those were thought to be sensual. Big hair with gold gems were all the rage in Ephesus. But in another part of the world, and certainly in ours, a high tower of braided hair is no problem. <laughs> uh, it doesn't present me with any problems. So. Here's what this means, I think. 
It means that modesty, friends, is multifaceted. Or in the spirit of our clothing imagery, it is multi-layered. It's about lust, but it's also, and this is what we get for widening our, our handle and use of the word. It's about lust, but it's also about luxury. It is immodest to show off your skin. It's also immodest to show off your clothes. Which means it is possible that your Sunday best may be immodest exactly because it's your best if you're wearing it to impress. And our obsession with Easter dresses and such may be immodesty even if they go to the ankle. I say may. In this case, it's a matter of intent, which is what modesty and self-control are about. I'm not saying dress ugly next week, please. I'm suggesting that our narrow understanding of modesty makes us hear sensuality in this passage, whereas the problem in context was at least more to do with wealth and luxury and showing off in that respect. There were prostitutes in town. The thing he addresses at paragraph length or two paragraph length is wealth, though. So we have two checklists, one for the inside and one for the outside, one that's a matter of eternal principle and one that's a matter of expression of that principle in a particular context. First, check the heart. The first checklist is a heart checklist. What's inside? Questions of who you are, your being. And we've covered these. Are you being respectable? Are you being modest or are you showing off? Are you being self-controlled or are you a slave to eyes and opinions? And after checking the heart, check the material and the the ornaments. What's on the outside? Here's Here's just a list for evaluation. Check the amount of fabric. It's transparency, the holes in where they appear and whether things can be seen from the side. The tightness of the fabric, its its movement, the color or the patterns and the attention it it draws. Different cultures, bright, bright, radiant dresses are fine. But are you wearing this in order to be the center of attention? That would be immodesty. Consider the occasion for the outfit, the particular company that you'll keep and the cost or the brand of the outfit. And if you still need some help, as far as on the sensuality side, try putting it on. And if it's especially hard to put on your body, if you wonder if you could get it off, try to sit down if you have to be extra careful when you sit down. And look at your shadow. Is it obvious from looking at your shadow that you are wearing clothes? That's a good test. That's some help for what not, for what not to wear. Well, what can women wear? Because that's, that's a bit of negativity. What can women wear? Is there a list of approved garments? Wouldn't that be nice? The world makes a big deal out of clothes. We put over our skin. Every year there's new styles. The mom jeans thing coming back was hard. Like I did not see that coming, but, I, but, it's, but it's cool. Clothing styles come and go. They're in one season and they're out the next, but there is a kind of clothing that never goes out of style, sisters. Clothing styles vary from place to place, but there, is, there are some garments that you can wear anywhere. Clothing loses its value, but there is a kind of clothing whose value, whose value will increase for all eternity. And clothing wears out, but there is a kind of clothing that never fades. In fact, it gets more beautiful, and it gets more beautiful on you with time, even eternity. Here's what God wants you to put on every morning, ladies. It works For every body type, women should adorn themselves, verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And how typical of the scriptures not to let us dwell on externals for too long without looking to the inner person of the heart. Works that radiate more brightness from a lady when they are seen than the most expensive jewelry or the highest tower of hair (laughs) or the most revealing ankles. And what are these works? 
On chapter five, he speaks to widows and he says this, widows have a reputation for good works. He's gonna tease them out here. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Social good. Oh, the stereotype that is made out of ladies, that they are a shell, that they are their appearance. Ladies, you are not your appearance. Brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, and cared for the afflicted, and devoting herself to so much social good. Men, let us praise these things in our ladies. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And we should shepherd these things and encourage these things. No, I am not responsible for the flourishing cosmetic industry uh, and some of the more sensual clothes that are on offer today in a direct way because I'm not buying them. But in an indirect way, men, there is a market for our eyes. So let us Let us approve of and affirm and cheer on the good works in the lives of our sisters here. Where does one get this kind of garment anyway? How can you foster it? Where does it come from? Listen to these words from chapter six. As for the rich in this present age, there's that theme again, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who gives richly, who provides richly, who richly provides us, excuse me, with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. There it is again. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may lay hold of that which is truly life. You don't buy this garment of good works with money. In fact, wealth makes it harder to find. You secure this garment of good works by setting your hope, my dear sisters, in God, by making your life to revolve around him. Don't set him aside when you go shopping. Don't set him aside when you get dressed. Set your hope on him who richly provides everything for you to enjoy and who frees you from the superficial expectations of others around you. My dear sisters, you are more than your appearance. You are daughters of the living God. You are more than a shell. You are being compelled by a thousand messages every day to bear yourself. You dear ones, though, bear the image of our maker. Your bodies are being marketed for consumption all around us, which provides you with a certain kind of struggle and your brothers. But our immortal God, the King of ages, has set his mark on us both, and you are his. The ads tell you to pay attention to your image. Sisters, pay attention to the lowly and afflicted. The racks tell you to open your body in sensuality. Sisters, open your homes in hospitality. The storefronts tell you to fill your time shopping and in front of the mirror. Sisters, spend what time you need in front of the mirror. I understand it takes longer than us. It's ridiculous how long it doesn't take me to get ready. It's offensive how long it doesn't take me to get ready. But don't fill your time shopping and don't fill your morning in front of the mirror. Fill your time in front of people, your children, your family, your neighbors. The world tells you everything you're supposed to apparently need. Give yourselves to those who are in need. We know a great big God, so men don't make a big deal out of small things in the church. And women, don't make a great big deal out of yourselves. Our majestic God has shown us mercy, so let's pray and let's clothe ourselves with good works. And those good works, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. We read those words. Now here's the next line. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds, the good works of the saints. And it says it was granted for her. 
Are we going to be in the presence of God and the lamb beautified by our force of righteous deeds? No, our robes are dipped in the blood of Christ and they are white for that reason. It says here, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, which is her own righteous deeds. A church, a healthy church is a beautiful church, a church that is getting ready for her wedding, a church whom God has granted as a gift to clothe herself with fine linen and good works. The capacity, the ability, the desire, the spiritual energy to pursue these good works is a gift of God's spirit as he readies us for himself on that wedding day. And to put in order what we might show off before him, what he has worked in us, before his majesty and his mercy are groomed forever. So wrote one 17th century clergyman, James John, and I'll close with this. Accidents may distort the finest form and diseases fade the loveliest coloring. Time disfigure the smoothest surface and death the spoiler of beauty. Work a change so awful and appalling as to turn away the most impassioned admirers with disgust. How soon will every other dress be replaced by the shroud and every other decoration be stripped off to make way for the flowers that are strewn in the coffin? But the graces of the heart and the beauties of the character are imperishable. So brothers and sisters who know a majestic and merciful God, don't argue but pray, men, and adorn yourself with respectable, modest, and self-controlled apparel, ladies, and especially with good works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word here. We thank you for commands like this, which are good, which are from your heart. Such a wide heart with so much mercy and so much love for sinners that reached so far even to us to save us by the blood of Jesus, our ransom, and to clothe us with his righteousness that is his. And then as we have heard, even by your mercy to grant us to be clothed with righteous deeds that are worked up in this life. And so we pray for the grace and for the strength to be not only a saved people merely from punishment, but a truly saved people from sin and its power. A church redeemed, a church radiant, a church peaceable among the men who get things in the right order and who don't argue, but who pray sincerely, spiritually and ladies who are clothed and famous for their good works. It's in Christ's name and for his sake and because of him that we pray all of this, amen.